I don't think we think of ourselves as a sustainable office. Like that's not our practice. That's not our brand. But the Reese stuff came out of this hybrid of sort of critiquing the way that architecture is practiced in the world and the amount of material required for its generation. And also to think of ourselves as people who tend to react to things around us through design thinking. Hello, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today's episode features Evie Diamantopoulou and Jaffer Kolb, who lead the New York-based design practice New Affiliates, formed in 2016. New Affiliates has completed a wide range of work in different areas and at different scales, from ground-up projects to adaptive reuse to exhibitions through New York's Jewish Museum, The Shed, and the Canadian Center for Architecture, in addition to working on collaborations with the New York City Departments of Sanitation and Parks and Recreation. The firm was named Next Progressives by Architect Magazine in 2018 and was awarded the Architectural League Prize by the Architectural League of New York in 2020. We're excited to share a conversation with Evie and Jaffer about the development of new affiliates over the years, the challenges of representation for projects with many possible forms, and the potential of reuse in architecture, among other things. Let's dive in. So today on the podcast, we have Evie and Jaffer of New Affiliates. Thanks for being on the podcast today, y'all. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Indeed we are. Yeah, thank you so much. So starting off, you two met at Princeton pursuing your MRCs, but have very different backgrounds. So Evie studied architecture and worked in Greece previously, while Jaffer has a background in film and urban, urban planning before turning to architecture. How do you think these prior experiences have played a role in your practice? Um, um, I guess I'll start. <laughs> um, we, it's a really good question and one that we actually think about all the time. I think there's a version of this answer where we say, oh, it doesn't matter. We just kind of ended up where we have. But I actually think that our respective backgrounds have played a huge role in how we practice, how we communicate with each other. Our partnership sort of started in grad school and we were both finishing our thesis projects at the same time. And we found that we really enjoyed talking to each other about our work because of those differences. So as you noted, Lindsay, I came from a non-architecture background and I tend to think of architecture and design still to this day, even 10 years later, as a kind of outsider. And I think Evie, I always thought of at least as like kind of architecture's preeminent insider, um, really kind of lived and breathed it for a long time. And I think that even when we're doing our thesis projects, it was sort of communicating about work, about the discipline, about our projects through these kind of really different lenses. I think that like, you know, I relied on on her a lot to sort of help shape the way that I approach architecture through architecture. And, you know, I'll, I'll obviously let Evie speak for herself, but I always felt like the conversations on my end were more about how to kind of pull in external references and ideas. And I think that that's really how we still operate to this day. Um, we tend to kind of look at every project, both from the inside and the outside, uh, from practice to drawing to representation to building, uh, to concept and all of that. And I think it's still always striking this balance between something that feels shaped by extra disciplinarity versus intradisciplinarity. And that's something you know that we really enjoy. It's a tension that I think we explore a lot in the projects themselves. 
Yeah, that in a way, you know, it started as a really fun friendship, right? You want to surround yourself with people that kind of like open things up for you, right? And like give you new references and like have seen things you've never seen before. And I feel like we acted this way for each other when we first intersected and we continue to do that. Like as Jaffer well mentioned, maybe to just speak for myself, especially coming from like a really rigid polytechnical education, having worked in design built before I, I pursued my mark, like the, um, the reason why I want to do this kind of extra quote unquote unnecessary degree, right? The post that is the post-professional education was just really um, to me a means to escape and try to just reapproach architecture from a different angle. And along the way, you know, people like Jaffer and like other classmates at the time at Princeton like really offered that opportunity in that space. And it's like amazing to be able to continue to do so, you know, 10 years later. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like also thinking about all the different intersections of the disciplines that you guys studied, but also kind of how that then gets transferred into your practice. I think it is really reflective because you do touch on so many different kind of aspects of design. I know you work in exhibition design, you work in product design occasionally, like architecture at that scale of a house or larger, which I think is really interesting to kind of that you go, you flip between all these different scales which might be a test to the fact of some of your kind of your different backgrounds and how you have ended up merging them and like talking about things um, as you start. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a big part of it too, where we're always looking at architecture's boundaries, you know, where it kind of butts up against other disciplines, like the real world, the public, um, the way that the public perceives architecture. You know, it's never simply about thinking about buildings like as a kind of autonomous or singular entity, but really thinking about the way that they interface or interact with both the kind of intellectual conceptual boundary, but also a kind of like physical boundary. And I really think this comes so much from this inversion of two modes of thinking and practice. So, you know, for someone who's really studied and thought about architecture in a very serious way, and then someone who sort of treats it as a kind of like level ground with like film, urban planning or whatever, it means that we're just every project we do, we test against um, against how it kind of interfaces with like its reception outside of itself. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think we were also kind of introduced to architecture at the moment where like this idea of the interdisciplinary was really big. But um, both of us felt that this idea of the discipline is very present in the interdisciplinary, right? We were urged to talk to like other scientists. And through these different modes of practice, I think it's more interesting. We've found a lot of engagement, of course, talking to other professionals, but also non-professionals, you know, talking to non-academic participants, maybe in a better way, raising it. Uh, you know, those who build our projects, those who permit projects, those who supply materials, kind of really opening things up in between projects and types and scales and modes of operating. Yeah, so... Thinking about all of those different maybe threads, can you like talk a little bit more about how after meeting uh, in Prince at Princeton, how you then jumped off into starting the firm and how that kind of has evolved? How did you start it? What were you thinking? Kind of maybe as some of your founding principles and how have those evolved, or is it all just kind of been slowly building and you just now maybe starting to see those things kind of coalesce into more of a core idea at the center of your firm, maybe. The latter sounds maybe a little more truthful, though it was more forced than that. We started 
somewhat organically with one project informally kind of advising the kind of amorphous. There's this project, let's think about it together um, in a more hands-off way. And we just had a lot of fun <laughs> and thought, you know, uh, thought, why don't we do this quite seriously? And from there, from that uh, organic form of collaboration that felt a little bit like an extension of what we did in graduate school with theses, uh, we were like, wait, we should just do this. And then all of a sudden we decided to set up this apparatus and be ready and kind of reach out to people and look for projects and really formalize it um, in stark contrast to you know, the slow beginnings. Uh, so we rented an office and set up a website and uh, looked for a network of consultants and it began with the infrastructure and hoped for the best while at the same time teaching and supporting ourselves through other means. And at the time it was an experiment and we hoped it was going to work out. It wasn't something we were able to do indefinitely when you had, we were on a ticking clock. Um, and very fortunately, almost immediately, a couple of projects came our way and uh, we moved on from there. It's difficult to imagine advising anyone doing that. I think it was like, <laughs> uh, looking back at it, we we were incredibly lucky in the way things turned out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, a, I love the way you put it, Lindsay, like, what were you thinking? I think we ask ourselves that all the time. Like, what were we thinking? But there's, it was an interesting admixture, admixture of being both organic and also highly calibrated. So we didn't necessarily set out expectations for ourselves about precisely how we would work or what projects we would take on. We didn't say like, you know, we're going to start with this idea that we're only going to do X kind of project or, you know, we're going to do housing or exhibitions or whatever. It was more just like we both, we enjoyed the conversation and the kind of dialectic that we carried through our kind of earliest, you know, formation on uh, each other in terms of an intellectual conversation. And we were like, let's apply that method to kind of projects in the world. And at the same time, as Evie said, we kind of set everything up to be a real office. We had this real attitude of fake it till you make it. So, you know, if we dress like adults and talk like adults and have a lawyer and have an accountant and have an office and have a website, then somehow we'll just be the office that we, <laughs> we imagined. And the amazing thing is how that seemed to, to just work. You know, I think immediately when we, when we had our first clients, we had a template for a contract we could pass to them in an hour, you know, that was basically, this is what it looks like to work with us. And I think that was very convincing to them because we obviously were sort of just starting out and we didn't have a huge portfolio to fall back on. Uh, but I think, you know, we got some advice really early on in our, in our careers where, you know, someone told us just make stuff and think about it later and keep producing and keep building and take on all the projects and just do, do, do. And then eventually you can start to theorize it or have like a more thoughtful relationship to the work you've been doing. And I think that's an ongoing process. You know, we don't necessarily know what we're doing yet, but we just keep making work and we keep hoping it plugs into some bigger framework, you know, whether that be ideological or practical. And, um, and that's been really fun because what it means is that as we're producing, we're pausing to kind of self critique and also think through what it is exactly that we're putting into the world. And I think that kind of ongoing process of like doing and reflecting is a much more honest way of working than predetermining the type of career you think you might want to have and trying to force that out of the clients you take on or the projects that you do or even how you do them. 
It's interesting as years go by, we start to see the pattern that, you know, slowly uh, repeats itself in, in terms of our busy month or our just production months. And then like, uh, the, the constant reminder to, you know, every you know, six months pause, look at things, have some, a little bit of slow time, you know, write a little, think a little, and then go back into this kind of uh, running mode that we are at these days. <laughs> Uh, keep going in and out of it. It, it, It's been productive. We never set out to say, okay, we would spend eight months making things and the ninth month we'll like think about it and the 10th month we'll make again. Uh, But it's been, one thing we share is that neither of us is overly precious with sharing work. Like neither of us feels like things need to be impeccably fleshed out before anything is communicated. We're a little bit informal about putting things out into the world and like really being subject to critique and being subject to comments and kind of shaping work through sharing, um, which also I think has helped us maintain this process. Yeah, I think you always have to, it's about, you have to have enough pieces where you kind of, you had the contracts, you had the consultants, things kind of, the more like logistical elements lined up and then you really were able, that gave you the freedom to kind of think through the process and like reflect, as you said. And I think it's great when you have that kind of more, organized logistical side and then you're still able because of that you have the benefit of being able to maybe share things more and get that kind of back and forth of critique which is really nice and I think one of the other it hasn't been brought up yet but I think maybe one of the like a common thread in your work that I see or at least you even have a section on your website for this type of work but reuse seems to be like a really important principle to the firm, really thinking about kind of material excess and how you can deal with that in terms of architecture. And I'm wondering what really brought you to thinking through that, because I think we still, at least for me in school, even we haven't really addressed reuse or adaptive reuse or kind of we're just starting to address more of the material implications of architecture. And I really wonder how you got uh, turned on to that in your work and what, why you decided to really deal with that. I mean, it's interesting. One of the things about our office is that we don't necessarily have like a hyper-defined formal sensibility. You know, Evie and I weren't brought together because we wanted to make certain shapes that we thought didn't exist in the world. We're like the opposite of like a Zaha office, you know? I don't think you can go back and look at our sketches from 10 years ago. Like, of course, they just had something to say in the world that looked a certain way. I think that inherently we're both very reactive people. Like we we're, we react to the world and conditions around us. We need a client. We need a prompt. Um, we're not really the type of designers who will, you know, one of us will go on vacation and come back with like a notebook full of like new building ideas or something. I think we really respond to things around us. And I think that's kind of where, where the reuse project came in. I mean, I think that we both have a certain sense of of ethical obligation towards like issues around um, you know sustainability and environmentalism. I don't think we think of ourselves as a sustainable office. Like that's not our practice. That's not our brand. But the reuse stuff came out of this hybrid of sort of critiquing the way that architecture is practiced in the world and the amount of material required for its generation, and also to think of ourselves as people who tend to react to things around us through design thinking. And so the reuse project was actually very organic. We never set out to do it, but as we were doing these apartments and exhibition designs and working in New York and just 
just constantly seeing garbage, you know, dumpsters full of building material being thrown out in service of us building new things in old spaces, we started to get the sense of this material economy that was constantly circulating and how strange it was that material was being constantly siphoned out of buildings, thrown away just to be re-injected in the form of newness. And so I think we really just became obsessed with this like image of constant cyclicality that was surrounding us. Um, the only other thing I'd say before shutting up is that, you know, I don't think you can really teach reuse in school. We've tried to teach studios on reuse, but it requires requires having the real material to work with. And if it's a speculative project, it just starts to feel very inauthentic or very like non-real. So in a way, you know, students are always talking to us about our reuse work. And it's really great to know that that resonates with young people. And I always encourage them to do those projects, but you can't really do them in the abstraction or the abstract space of a studio. You know, I think you really need to have your hand on that stuff in order to rework it. The second it's like an abstract speculation, it just tends to feel a little like fantasy or sci-fi and it doesn't actually contain that sort of frictive responsiveness that reuse sort of requires in thinking about it as a design tool. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot as you speak, Jafar, of just maybe to add this uh, no, issue of control that's also very difficult to teach uh, or engage with in the world of school um, that you know, is quite central into our reuse world at large. Right? Like you, you have to deal with, even in, you know, you brought up adaptive reuse, right? Um, the, you, the way you um, set yourself in dialogue with an existing building kind of requires to look at more than the building's plan and sections, right? It requires you to engage with more than just the space in between existing building fragments. And I don't know, it starts to engage like beyond just material access and reuse, just ideas around labor, around how you form work, how you kind of read different details of the past. It, it just becomes a project that in our own work, we've really only figured out like on the ground. Like, we, we can't just like lock ourselves into the office and just imagine what would happen if the order arrives and everything is broken or what would what happens when uh, you know you leave the construction site and you have a 20% contingency sitting on a bean what what do you do with that or what happens when you detail things a certain way and then you see on like work all day to kind of perform the perfection or the absolute control that your abstracted drawings suggest uh, so all of these things that would not have happened if we were not just constantly being confronted with real projects with real client expectations with just like the frustration of the, the need and demand and love for cleanliness, newness, perfection, all of these things that on paper look really simple. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that you also bring up kind of the issue of maybe reuse in schools because uh, I myself have done like two studios on adaptive reuse. And I do, I think you do find that there is, it's not because you're not necessarily going to carry out that project. I think the stakes are a little lower and I do agree that it's kind of hard to imagine in reality how something will work just because I think the point of school is that we're kind of suspending a little bit of our disbelief in terms of maybe construction or some of the 
material lifespans. Like it's hard to know how all of those factors would work unless you were actually working on the project. So I think that is an interesting thing to point out. Yeah. I mean, I think our job as educators and, you know, Evie and I both teach not full time, but it's important to our practice to develop ideas through teaching. And I think that our, you know, what we think of when we think about pedagogy in the context of like being in school and how we teach studios, it's less about trying to force students to think abstractly about real things and, and, you know, kind of fall between the cracks. But it's more to try and teach a kind of like ethics of, you know, material use that allows students to imagine the possibilities once they're out in the world of how to rethink of materials and architecture and the, the intersection thereof. So I hope what I'm saying doesn't sound like we think reuse shouldn't be taught in school, even though I think I maybe explicitly said that. But it's more like, uh, I think as a kind of ethical framework, it's a really important thing to communicate to students. But it's just difficult to imagine taking those projects on because you can't really theorize reuse necessarily. And you can't really teach it as an as a broad form of design practice, you really have to take it on as a kind of like specific case by case basis. I mean, that's the nature of the problem. It's, it's it's its own kind of being. So yeah, I think it's like the middle ground we try and strike is like, think about these things, know that they're available to you, but also like maybe you just need to go out in the real world and do them in order to see how they work. I think that's, I think that's very true. It's hard to It's just so it's such a messy process. Every case would be different, just like every building in the real world is different. So I think what you said is exactly kind of getting it there. But maybe turning to or did you have something to say, Evie? I was going to add an example from our recent study at Columbia, uh, uh, maybe along these lines to ground it a little bit, make it a little less abstract as a as a claim or proposition. But we were we just finished teaching this study on granite as a material, and um, I don't know one of the funny lessons like one of our students took away, or many of our students took away, were that you know they went to an actual uh, supplier here in New York City and understood that you can order you know a black kind of granite that looks 90% the same. And one of those products comes from, you know, Canada and the other comes from the other end of the world and both, you know, look identical and you can specify them without kind of considering where they come from and uh, what the kind of mechanisms of extraction have been and what their sites are. So even just getting a student to speak to a supplier to understand that materials don't only have kind of a way in which they appear, but they also have a life before and a life after. There, uh, is already a really valuable lesson before you, you know, are the person that is out in the world and just you know assigns products to facets of buildings that live in your computer. <laughs> so um, maybe to turn a little bit to what I think is interesting in terms of maybe like some of the reuse or some of the research that your firm has done is that when you're thinking about how the process of representation kind of intersects with how you work with found elements or reused elements. I'm just very interested in how you end up approaching these different projects in terms of representation. So for example, in your project Drywall is Forever, it seemed to me perhaps you had this idea for how you might have been taking the kind of 
found pieces of drywall that you are scavenging and then re rearranging into a gallery wall, you might've had an idea for how those might look together, but then you can correct me if I'm wrong on this process, of course, but it seemed like then you created an elevation with more typical conventions of architectural drawings, kind of like structural grid lines, call outs uh, with little details after you had already like measured and taken stock of the pieces that you were able to work with. So I'm just wondering yeah, basically when you work with and maybe pieces like that that are irregular, kind of found elements or reused elements, all of the messiness and kind of literal little idiosyncrasies that kind of are you have to deal with in that process. I'm wondering how you kind of navigate the process of representation or what you're thinking when you're creating drawings to like represent something like that. Um, yeah, that drawing is a is an interesting example uh, of essentially operating somewhere between detailing or just like drawing process and kind of thinking of the actual image of the process of the project. Um, like in a way, what we did with that drawing was trying to anticipate what what we how we would construct it. <laughs> so we didn't at the time have the actual pieces. There are two versions of this drawing. There's uh, the elevation drawing that I believe you are referring to and then there are the actual piece drawings that were done after the fact. Uh, so the kind of first elevational drawing that you have in mind uh, was more of a speculation of yeah more or less we know what we'll get. We can imagine that once we get pieces some of them will have lettering and we can imagine some of them will have cutouts for outlets or other junction boxes you know um, you name it and then we could imagine that some would be thick and some would be thin and it doesn't quite matter what the actual puzzle would be like. But what that drawing gave us was um, uh, a way to start thinking. Typically, we do studs at 16 inches on center. Is this good enough? What if we get a small piece? What if we get a larger piece? And then in terms of assembling everything together, how big would we want our cracks to be? And do we want to cover these cracks? And the, the big reveal of that drawing was that, you know, in um, making it, we're like, oh, so maybe the joints are the project. Like, maybe it's not really about and everything perfectly together, but it's, it begins to suggest that the space in between cracks actually becomes interesting. It's something that we could start to see as an ornament. And maybe the holes don't matter and the punches don't matter and the uneven surface is like totally fine. But what we want to be controlling, what we want to be operating is this kind of uh, meandering gap in between that so much of you know the gallery wall aesthetic or even just like the white wall aesthetic at large as it dominates our lives and my apartment behind me is really um, about not having any joints or seams or cracks. It is a construction manual for ourselves first <laughs> and a wayfinding device of what to anticipate. And sometimes it ends up, it turns out we had a good hunch and sometimes we decide that, oh, wait, this doesn't actually work. Um, now, the piece drawings were a completely different story because we ended up getting the pieces and uh, really paying attention to their specifics as a way of assigning value to them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, such a good question and such a smart observation, Lindsay. I like really appreciate it because you're totally right. And I think what's so interesting about like the, these kind of projects of reuse is how they deal with time. So all of the way that we represent these projects is both a kind of speculation on a possible future as well as a recording of a material past. And they're a way for us to sort of like test hunches and see what we might be able to do creatively with existing material 
through a kind of like, you know, speculative projection. Um, so I think for us, you know, Evie and I always joke that we're not like huge representation people. Our drawings don't always look the same. Um, oftentimes we get caught up in so many projects that we just can't make like beautiful concept drawings. And that's always such a tragedy to us. But I do think that we use representation as a tool to help us figure out how to design. I think Evie brought up a great example with the seams of the drywall piece. So in a way, like that was both a drawing that was neither before nor after the fact, right? Like it wasn't a priori or a posteriori, but it kind of happened as an in-between self-check to make sure that we were going in the right direction and we revisited it, we did it. And kind of like what I was saying earlier, it's like you make and reflect and make and reflect. Representation is actually a major part of the engine that kind of leads that back and forth. But yeah, no, I think you're totally right. Um, And it's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think maybe a little bit more on that kind of, I like the way you frame it as a speculation on a possible future, really thinking through, or like what's one possible future for what this project could look like based on maybe ideas you have, like your inputs, and then also some of the inputs that you know you're getting. So I think that at least that like turns my mind to the um, project test beds, because I think that to me is so interesting because you're kind of proposing to reuse a lot of these one-to-one architectural mock-ups in New York City to really like reuse them as community infrastructure. And I think what's so interesting about kind of the process or even getting people interested and kind of getting people sold on that idea is that you're not you're not sure what you're going to get in terms of mock-ups or like so you really have to it's up to you and the representation to kind of convince people that these are one possible future, this image is one possible use for that, which I think is such an interesting way to kind of set up a project and speculate on a project. You're not exactly sure what you're going to get, but you have to convince people that this is possible. And then kind of how do you filter that into something that actually exists based on um, what you can get or like what the uh, mock-ups are that are available to you? I think that's so interesting. Well, it's also tough because, you know, that project in particular is one in which we need to be able to communicate to so many different parties and stakeholders. And, you know, we've made millions of drawings and images for that project. And a lot of it comes down to like, okay, we're going to present it to the city. We're going to present it to other architects. You know, we have to try and get architects interested in the project to give us their mock-ups. And when we take these, you know, images to an architecture firm, say we take them to a kind of like quasi-academic sort of intellectual practice, they don't want to just see renderings. They want to see some smart disciplinary drawing that kind of shows an act of translation, um, you know, between some kind of uh, provocation of design through to its material actualization, etc. And so it's so funny to me that we've had to come up with a system of representational devices that can communicate to like so many different audiences that we are trying to get interested in the project. So typically you might make some concept drawings and some renderings that speak to a client versus, you know, a teaching context. That's easy. That's sort of like two or three different audiences. But in this case, it's trying to get so, so many people, the city, the parks department, the gardeners, architects, engineers, developers, etc., all on board with the same image of something. And it is tough, you know, like that has been a very, the struggle is real on that project. And I think, you know, our folders for it contain more 
fragmentary representational types than any other project we've worked on. And so I think it's, it is interesting and it's a huge part of the project that we like, but it's also been incredibly difficult. And I don't think we've nailed it. You know, I still, to this day, anytime someone says, Hey, can I have a dossier of that project? I think we all get this like momentary panic. We're like, who's going to see it? Do we have the right image? Oh my God, we have to make four more. And then we have to add, you know, another folder to our thousand folder list of like different drawing types that we have for it. Uh, so yeah, that, that it's in a way emblematic of what's been so difficult and interesting about that project all along, which is how you take something and try and pitch it in so many different trajectories to different audiences. And audiences that intersect with a project directly from different angles. It's never someone from the outside. You're, it's, it's always somehow very personal that you, you explain to someone how they are part of this larger issue that you're outlining. So you're always treading carefully <laughs> and like kind of negotiate expertise. Like you can't go to an architect and tell them what a mock-up is, but you also don't want to go to a gardener and tell them how to use their garden. Right? And none of this expertise is like in actuality ours. So we're just always kind of <laughs> relating to everyone else in the project through our narratives or representation. It's been fun. Yeah. Would you say that you think kind of maybe the process of dealing with some of the city entities or like the city, the parks department, other architects, has that helped inform any of your other projects? Or do you think it makes it easier sometimes because you've had to deal with all of this bureaucracy or like is every, I mean, it's such a, it's such a specific project. I wonder if there's like, you still find though that some of the processes have helped you like navigate other aspects of your work? That's a very good question. I, I can't say I've actually thought about this until now. So really, thank you. Like <laughs> um, truly just need to sleep on this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's a good pop point to uh, pause and reflect maybe, or like, <laughs> yeah, we don't have to put this in here. I just kind of had that thought in my head, like at the because I think we've talked a lot about uh, reuse and some of those aspects in your work. And I just think there's so much other work that the firm does, exhibition design, um, done like lofts, housing. So I think it, I just wondered if it like kind of, if having to produce so many drawings or like having to really think through all of the different stakeholders, if you've had, if you felt like it informed other things or like kind of bled into other things, maybe. I mean, I think it's, it is a great question. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a hard question because maybe relating back to something I was saying earlier about how, you know, we all know the challenge of trying to make, you know, renderings that a client will like and then drawings that will attract, you know, other architects to our practice because, you know, peer support and peer acknowledgement is, is really important to how architecture functions. So, you know, I don't know that there have been any specific lessons learned through test beds other than reinforcing the importance of those types of, um, you know, artifacts of visual communication. So, you know, we, we know now more than ever how important good representation is for a project, not only in the way that we communicate with these different parties, but also knowing how they communicate with each other. So one of the things that we found a lot in test beds is like, you know, we would make some renderings for a garden and say, hey, this is what we have in mind. Like, we hope you think it looks beautiful. We think it looks beautiful. But then they would take those images and send it to all the gardeners and say, uh, you know, I thought it was great because of the way you were describing it on the call. And I thought the images looked really cool. 
cool. But then when I sent them around, everyone was just super confused. And we have like way more questions than we have opinions or answers. And in a way, understanding that representation acts as currency is something that I don't necessarily think we'd really considered before because we're usually so in control of our communication about the project. So we'll say, hey, we have a client meeting next week. We need to make like three really beautiful renderings that will sell them on the materials. But then we have an engineer meeting the week after and we need to make some really technical drawings. That's all fine. That's all well and good. We know that like the drawings matter in that case. We know how to talk through them with people. But actually, test beds has proven to us or demonstrated to us that all of these drawings are currency that like gets exchanged in its own right outside of our ability to actually intervene in its reception. So we can't be there to say, this is what you should see in this image. Here are some answers. We just let it go. And that's shot us in the foot a few times, you know, like they're like this project has had so many iterations, so many close calls. And we're very happy to report the foundations are poured for the pilot project. So there's no turning back. Like this is it. We're going forward with it. But, you know, there have been versions of the project where we had a garden that was super engaged, a developer that was engaged, a mock-up waiting for us. And then the gardeners would just get their hands on all these, you know, renderings we've made, for example, and they would just kind of collectively reject the design outside of the kind of um, garden leadership. So they would just sort of say like, we understand these. And, you know, that sounds frustrating and it is, but it's also what's so beautiful about the project is like, you know, we can only push it so far and it has to be publicly consumable after a certain point. So I don't, you know, th- there's no immediate lessons that you can take from that and say, this is we're gonna, how we're going to change practice, you know, moving forward. But I think that it's really taught us a lot about the kind of like a- economics of representation and how it can kind of lead to, you know, the kind of life or death of a project. Yeah. Maybe to add an optimistic note, then that's, that's a good answer to it. Um, we, we always the both of us and as a practice we've always been highly collaborative right we've never even with you know our more kind of quote-unquote proper architectural projects like our paid work institutional residential or you know all of it we've never been the kind of architects that arrive with a set and a vision and a kind of push for a certain agenda or idea we've always been very interested in shaping the project together with whoever we're working with or intersecting with and that's something we already had brought to test beds and and it runs through the project. My more optimistic note is that I think it made us a little more shameless in understanding how open the city is to kind of receive ideas and collaborate. If I'm not mistaken, my memory routinely fails me in terms of temporality and just sequence of things. Uh, but after having like this surprisingly like, wonderful uh, collaboration with the parks department, followed by a blank email where you know, we were like, hey, we have this idea, could we present it to you? We also you know, uh, began our collaboration with the Department of Sanitation. Right? So it made us think that, oh, what, what else we can do? We can reach out to the city there and we can you know, keep intersecting with them. And that's kind of how our um, exhibition reuse projects came upon as well. Um, so yeah, opening up, asking for help, <laughs> engaging the world outside, you know, our contract or project brief is something that you know, we've been encouraged to do more and more through this. Yeah, I think that also maybe kind of leads back to earlier when you, or I think it might have been you or Jaffer, but you were describing yourselves as a little bit reactive, like you're kind of responding or like, I think part of the process of the firm's trajectory has been to just respond to kind of maybe some of the projects that are out there, what you're, what you've been working on. And I think that's very interesting to 
see that you kind of got out of this process that you saw that the city was open and then you realized there was another in another department, which I think really helps when you're trying to think about some of these issues of reuse. It's always nice to have like more of a kind of a larger uh, city entity because I think that helps you kind of up the scale or you can get more of the public involved when you really know that you're able to make those um, connections. Yeah, I guess it it just shows that it doesn't hurt to like kind of reach out and like really see if people are interested. Uh, at least the worst you can get is like no. Yeah, exactly. Like we, uh, as you say, like typically architects intersect with the city, as in the Department of Buildings, the permanent agency that kind of like big brother kind of watching all of our, uh, you know, our our professional performance. And it, it's it's nice to think of the city as you know a, a infrastructure that we can intersect with in multiple ways and kind of find support in and kind of collaborate with. Evie is our perennial optimist and I'm our perennial pessimist. This is another part of our partnership probably that we didn't talk about at the beginning, but my sort of pessimistic take on it, which is sort of fine and how we operate is, you know, I think we, we think a lot about how the profession of architecture has been kind of eroded from a lot of different sides. You know, people like don't really need architects as much. There's industrial building typologies. You can order a building online. You can work directly with a contractor. Um, I think particularly in America, in the United States, architecture has sort of become more and more specialized and isolated and a way that only kind of super wealthy people can afford to buy a brand. And that's like what architecture is because we've lost a lot of typologies along the way. You know, schools, prisons, barns, all of these things, like even airports to a certain degree, it's like they can be sort of practiced by a constellation of professionals that are not necessarily architects. And one of the things I think that we've sort of forced ourselves to learn is that to a certain degree, you have to rethink how architecture operates in order to kind of build outside of the typologies that you might be used to, right? So like, we do a lot of exhibition work, installation work, apartments, small houses, you know, we have we have these clients, and we know how to do those projects. But in order for us to do quote, unquote, public work, we sort of felt like we needed to invent a way of doing public work. And that involved kind of communicating directly with the city itself in order to know what that work might look like and how and how we could kind of get involved. And so I think for us, it's also a way of basically saying, you know, we need to reposition how architecture operates in order to kind of keep it from being eroded to the point of nothingness where architects aren't asked to do anything. And that's both pessimistic because it's sort of a kind of capitalist version of, of our practice, which is to say, we're trying to differentiate ourselves and find new markets, essentially. But it's also about, you know, I appreciate the difficulty that as a generation, we and everyone who comes after us has, which is that we need to make architecture perform better in order to keep it from being completely erased. And I think that requires a kind of like reformulation of an ethical agenda and test beds for us. Um, not to say that that's any kind of bastion of, of great work, but it was just a project where we were like, oh, shoot, this is the only way we're going to get to do like something in the city that's ground up. Let's like talk to people about it. And what was amazing is how responsive they were and how much it felt like a kind of public gesture, not just in terms of, you know, space in the city, but also in terms of how we communicate between the parks department and the community gardens that we're in touch with, et cetera. So it was sort of like it came about out of a kind of cynicism, but kind of felt like an optimistic cynicism or like a happy, generous cynicism in the end. I think I think that's a great way of describing it. I just I feel like first off, maybe as like a way of wrapping up a little bit, I I'm excited that the foundations are poured for the 
pilot project. That's so exciting to hear. Um, just because it sounds like you really had to negotiate so many different people and really like, it sounds like the amount of kind of drawings or like the process that went into it is so large and it's great that the public will be able to really like explore that and uh, experience that. And I also think that as a firm, I'm really excited that new affiliates exist, not to, I'm going to be the optimist maybe, but I think it's just, I think it's a nice way of like kind of describing practice, like, and thinking about uh, architecture and kind of how you can expand it. And then also how we can make it operate better for other people, which is uh, just, I think it's a very nice way of maybe operating in the world. So I guess, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was really such a pleasure to interview both of you. And I don't know if you have any other closing thoughts, but... Thanks, Lindsay. Well, thanks for the really thoughtful questions. It really, uh, it, it, it shapes us to be having these conversations and it, it helps, it really uh, kind of helps us uh, very much to like, hear from uh, from people like you, from smart people from all around. So thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I feel like now I like ended our conversation. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but no, Lindsay, we really appreciate like super thoughtful questions, really generous response to our practice and yeah i mean maybe going back to one of your earliest questions is like we don't think we figured it out yet but we're you know trying and conversations like this really help us kind of figure out why we like what we're doing too you know we don't like oftentimes sit back and, and think about how we're received or, or whatever and um yeah i mean i think particularly in the context of talking to smart younger people who you know are gonna have to sort of deal with whatever we all leave behind in the world it's you know we're trying to hold hold ourselves accountable to something so We appreciate that soft pressure from you. For more information on the work of new affiliates, please visit the firm's website, new-affiliates.us, or you can find them on Instagram at new underscore affiliates. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.